Lord Jesus, we praise you that weary sinners can come to you. All of our weakness and all of the woundedness that we have suffered in the world, and our sin sickness and our soreness, what great encouragement that you stand ready to save us, that you are full of pity or compassion, you're full of love, and you're able to save, you're full of power. We thank you, Lord, that you bid us come, the thirsty to come, the, the hungry to come, to eat of your free bounty. And the repentance and the faith that you require, you also give by your grace. So we confess this morning our weariness, our poverty, our neediness, our weakness, our woundedness, our sickness, our soreness, gladly. Because in your arms are 10,000 charms, 10,000 medicines to heal, to heal our souls. And so we come to you this morning. We ask that you would bless and attend to each and every one according to your infinite and perfect knowledge of our need. That you would supply and bless and strengthen and heal for your glory. Bless now the preaching of your word. Bless the hearing of your word that neither would be unfruitful. But that both together, mixed with faith, would bear much fruit. Do it, we pray. For the honor of your name, for the honor of your word, for the blessing of your people. In Jesus' name. Well, if you need a Bible this morning, there are some wonderful persons in the aisles that are distributing them. All you need to do is raise your hand, and uh, we would uh, get to you a Bible. Uh, you'll be helped to follow along in the Bible. You'll be helped to follow the sermon if you have a Bible. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible at home, you don't have a, a personal copy of the Scriptures, we want for that to be our gift to you. Um, so just keep that Bible, write your name in it. Uh, make it yours, and uh, that would be a blessing to us to see you take God's word home together, or take God's home, word home with you uh, to have in your home. Uh, we are continuing our study this morning in Luke's gospel. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 13. If you're new to the Bible, Luke is in the New Testament. It's one of what we call the gospels, uh, which are sort of biographies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're new to the Bible, when you hear me say chapter number, chapter 13, that's the big number on the page. When you hear me say the verse number, verse 10, that's the small number. So we're in Luke chapter 13, big number, beginning in verse 10, small number. Does somebody using one of those pew Bibles have a page number? Page 872? So page 872 uh, in one of the Bibles that we've provided. Everybody have it? Say Amen. Man, so 10 of y'all have it. <laughs> Anacostia River Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. That's our mission statement. We exist, if you're new to this church, we exist to glorify God in a particular way by making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ in a particular place, from the four corners of the block, 
here in our neighborhood to the four corners of the globe. That's why we exist. And to do that, we must first do the work of evangelism. We must first do the work of evangelism. Evangelism is telling the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and his second coming with the goal of persuading people to repent of their sins and enter into a life of faith, of following Jesus in obedience by faith. And the promise of that is that everyone who trusts in Christ and follows him as their Lord and their Savior, as their God who provides their righteousness and atones for their sins, in exchange, receive eternal life with God, fellowship in the love of God, and a place in his kingdom. So effective evangelism, then if we're going to fulfill our mission, is something that we all must learn to do better and better as the Lord gives us time and life. And there's no better person to learn evangelism from than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Luke chapter 13, verse 10, down through the end of chapter 14, which is our text this morning, we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ doing the work of an evangelist of an evangelist. And we want to sort of take note of how it is the Savior communicates the gospel to the audiences of his day. If you're taking notes, we've got five points here um, that divide this text for us. The first point is this. In terms of how Jesus does evangelism, number one, the Lord announces the kingdom of God. He announces the kingdom of God. We see that in verses 10 to 21 of chapter 13. Number two, he not only announces the kingdom of God, but number two, he urges people to enter the kingdom of God. He urges people to enter the kingdom of God. You see that in verses 22 to 30. Well, the third thing we'll note is there in verses 31 to 35. As the Lord is announcing this kingdom and as he is urging people to enter this kingdom, the Lord looks at the people with a bold brokenness, with a bold brokenness. Now we're in chapter 14, verses 1 to 24, and we see the fourth thing here. The Lord challenges people personally. He challenges people personally as he does the work of evangelism. And number five, the Lord is upfront about the cost of following him. He's upfront about the cost of following him. That's chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Before I read the text this morning, a uh, quick announcement here. There's a turquoise Toyota Camry uh, outside with its lights on in the parking lot. It's Maryland plate 1GBA02. All right, so if that sounds like that might be you, uh, your lights are on, uh, you might want to run out and uh, turn them off. But we'll still be having the sermon when you get back. All right. <laughs> Now, before I read the passage, let me give you something of an overview. Uh, this passage from verse 10 down to the end of chapter 14 really moves through four different scenes, okay? There are four settings that take place here, and uh, let me give those to you. In verse 10 of chapter 13, notice we begin with Jesus teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So he's there on the Sabbath teaching in the synagogue until we come down to verse 22. He leaves the synagogue 
And he goes through on his way to towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. You remember, we're in this part of the gospel where Jesus has focused his face on Jerusalem and he's began to teach people about his crucifixion, death, and resurrection, all of which must take place in that holy city, in the capital city, Jerusalem. Well, the third scene begins in chapter 14, verse 1. We fast forward to another Sabbath, but this time we don't find Jesus in the synagogue. We find him dining at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. This sort of big dinner party of the, the sort of powerful players of his day. And then the fourth scene is in verse 25. The Lord is outside again with great crowds accompanying him as he travels. Now, the thread that's kind of woven through this entire section that, that sort of sews or stitches the section together is found in a phrase that you'll see repeated several times called the kingdom of God. We see the kingdom of God described in parables in verses 18 and 20 of chapter 13. In verse 28, the kingdom of God refers to that place where the, where the forefathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have gone after death. In verse 29, the kingdom of God is where all the faithful from all over the world recline at the table with the Lord in his kingdom. And in chapter 14, verse 15, the kingdom of God is this place of special blessedness for those who enter it. And in one sense, throughout this entire section, what we're talking about is the nature of the kingdom of God, how it is we enter the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is like. And it's in that framework that Jesus in this section is preaching and teaching the gospel and modeling evangelism for us. So look with me in verse 10 as I read this section. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. <laughs> then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each one of you, each of you, on the Sabbath, untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, until it was all leaven. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, 
I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and the city that kills uh, and, and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invite, invited to, by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. One of those who reclined at table with him heard these things. He said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servants came and 
reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house uh, became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pot. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, the first thing we want to see in terms of Jesus the evangelist, and the first thing we want to sort of understand as we get to know our Lord as an evangelist is that he preaches the gospel in this text by announcing the kingdom of God. And he announces the kingdom of God in two ways back in chapter 13, verses 10 to 21. First, the Lord announces the kingdom of God with a miracle. You see there, verse 11 introduces us to a woman who had a, a disabling spirit for 18 years. She's been bent over and could not fully straighten herself. But, but this is more than old age back problems, right? Notice what the text says. There was a disabling spirit. And look down in verse 16. The Lord says there that Satan had bound this woman for 18 years. There she was in the synagogue on the Sabbath. What do you think she was hoping for? No doubt she was hoping God would remember her and deliver her. Verses 12 and 13 say, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are free from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. And with this miracle, we understand that the kingdom of God sets people free from the bondage of devils. Wherever the kingdom comes, it breaks the rule and the power of Satan. There will be no disability in the kingdom of God. There will be no deformity. There will be no corruption. There will be the glorifying of ourselves together with God the way we were made to be. And in an instant, in this miracle, Jesus gives us a commercial for the coming of the kingdom and what it brings. Everything that's crooked, 
including the backs bent from a devil's riding, will be straightened, be made right. Satan will be thrown off, and God will be given glory. He announces the kingdom with a miracle, but notice secondly, he announces the kingdom of God with two parables. Look there in verses 18 to 21. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. The first parable teaches that the kingdom of God grows outward and upward. It starts small like a mustard seed, but it grows and stretches like a, like a mighty tree and provides uh, branches for the birds to, to nest and to rest. It's a picture of its outward growth and expansion. But the second parable teaches that the, God, the kingdom of God grows inward and through. It's like hidden yeast or leaven. You, you can't see it, but it works its way through the entire batch of dough. The kingdom of God is both visible and invisible in certain ways. It grows outward and upward, but also inward and through. And this is why the Lord says in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And this is how he answered. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, or you may have some translation that says, in you. The kingdom, strictly speaking, is not a piece of real estate. It's not why, it's not why, this is why we're not hung up as Bible-believing Christians on Israel as a nation state. The kingdom that God brings, he says, is not of this world. And it's not of this world in a remarkable way. It's something that we are in, but also something that is in us. And when Jesus preaches the gospel in this, in this text, he, he preaches the gospel of the kingdom, of this coming rule and reign of God and this coming presence of God, which breaks into the world and breaks the, the power of Satan, breaks the rule of the devil, sets free all of those who had been held hostage by the power and the rule of the devil, and, and, and breaks into their very being, spreading like yeast and dough. But the kingdom of God is not always recognized or accepted, is it? Not everyone welcomes it. Verse 14, a ruler of the synagogue, <laughs> he gets indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He all in his feelings, right? He demands, notice now, he demands that the people come not on the Sabbath, but the other six days to get healed, as if he'd been healing all week, Right? <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> like, like if you just show up on the Sabbath any given day, the rabbi is going to do what Jesus just did. And Jesus sees his hypocrisy. In fact, that's what he calls him. He says, you hypocrite. And a hypocrite is someone who professes to be pious, professes to be religious, professes to be faithful, but denies the, the very profession by their lives. And he exposes this hypocrisy by saying, look here, man, you will on the Sabbath go get your donkey and water your donkey you don't want to see this daughter of Abraham, this woman of faith, healed on the Sabbath? 
This man has lost the plot. He's straining at gnats and swallowing camels. Jesus says, you hypocrite. And in that very word, he is alerting him that this kingdom that I preach, you're not in it. It's not yours. You don't understand how it works. The text says there that all of those people who opposed him, well, they closed their mouths in shame, don't they? But the greatest shame is this. Hypocrites don't recognize the kingdom of God. That will be to their eternal shame when it comes. So how do we apply this in our own evangelism? We want to reach our neighbors. We want to make the gospel known from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. Let me just give you two applications from this section here. Number one, let's be sure that sometimes when we preach the gospel, we preach the kingdom. Don't get me wrong. I understand that the gospel has to include in it the news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world in our flesh and our likeness. And we have to tell people that he lived a perfectly obedient life to God in order to supply our righteousness to God. And that he was crucified on the cross. And and when he was killed on the cross, he was being the Lamb of God that was offered to God to take away the sins of the world. He was punished in our place. And he was buried for three days. He really died physically. But he was raised three days later from the grave, conquering the grave. And he's coming again to gather his church. And everyone now is required to repent of their sins and believe in this Christ. That's sort of an irreducible central aspect of the gospel. That is the gospel in so many words. But this gospel purchases a kingdom. And when we speak sometimes in the larger metaphor of the kingdom of God, we get to address some things that, that isn't sort of immediately addressed by that other, that sort of gospel as I just outlined it. For example, how many of you have family and friends who say, I, I struggle to believe in a God or I can't believe in a God where there's such suffering in the world? They don't quite understand how the cross connects to suffering. And we can make that connection for them in a couple of steps. But notice in this text, Jesus comes announcing the kingdom in a miracle. And the answer to the suffering in the world is the, is the salvation of the world, is the, is the being made whole of the world. And that, that wholeness is, is experienced in foretaste in the kingdom right now, but will it be experienced perfectly in the kingdom when it finally comes? So that metaphor opens up for us other ways of talking about the work of God in the world through Christ his Son. I think sometimes if we develop different ways of getting into the gospel, we'll find ourselves making contact with things that, that are questions for people that aren't always obvious in our more traditional way of preaching the gospel. I mean, he says to this woman, you are free from your disability. You are free from suffering. The devil came to steal, kill, and destroy. His effects in the world are real. He is real. The power of the kingdom is stronger. It's greater. It breaks the back of Satan's rule. And it delivers all those who come into it. There's another application here for us. Let's be confident in the work of evangelism. Those two parables of the kingdom give us a picture of a kingdom that does spread. It's growing. Sometimes visibly and sometimes invisibly. 
That's, that's so wonderful. It, it means we don't have to evaluate our success by sort of some outward measure. The Lord may give us great number, and we may see a great harvest in this community as we go out and share the gospel, but he may be planting seeds beneath the ground where we can't see or, or kneading yeast into the dough in ways that we can't see, and the growth of the kingdom may be going on right in front of our eyes and yet not visible. It frees us from worldly measures of church success, and it frees us just to be faithful and to be confident, knowing that when we proclaim this gospel, this message of the kingdom, it will accomplish God's purposes. The kingdom is growing, beloved. And this means that we are no part of some kind of struggle where we might feel ourselves losing. We are not losing at all. There is no rivalry between Satan and Christ. Uh, the devil has no power to, to challenge this Christ who comes into the world and with the word breaks the back of Satan's rule. We, we're not losing. We're not struggling. We're not being pushed back into some fallback position. We are advancing. The kingdom is marching. The kingdom is spreading. And all of us who are on Team Jesus are winning. Whether we see it or not, we are winning. Let us be confident as we announce the gospel to our neighbors. Let's look at a second thing here. Not only does the Lord announce the kingdom, but notice secondly, the Lord also urges people to enter the kingdom. That's what we see in verses 22 to 30. As we said before, the Lord has left the synagogue. He's now in the towns and villages. He's making his way to Jerusalem where he knows he will be crucified. But he, but he stops off. I love this. He stops off in little towns and little hamlets on the way. You know why I love that? The Lord is never too busy for the little people. Even when he has the most important assignment in the universe, to go to the cross for our redemption, he's in small towns and villages talking to everyday folk. But in the village, someone asked the Lord a good question, verse 23, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, that's a good question. It's a good question because it focuses on the notion of saved, right? Let me give you a little simple definition of that. To be saved is to be rescued and kept. It's to be rescued and kept. We need to be rescued from God himself. We need to be rescued from his judgment, which is coming against the world because of sin. But we need to be kept by God himself. We can't keep ourselves, and, and it's not enough just to escape judgment. We were made for fellowship with him. We were made for his love. And so when a person is saved, they are snatched from the coming judgment of God, and they are brought near and kept to, to the heart of God. And this man asked that money question. He says, now, how many going to be saved? Will there only be a few? And perhaps the person is making an assumption in the question. Perhaps they think that they are safely in the kingdom, saved from God's wrath, so the question applies to other people, not them. I say this because of the way the Lord answers the person. The Lord doesn't talk conceptually about the few. Did you notice that? Or the many. The Lord basically says three things, all of which the subject is you. <laughs> he directs his attention to the man asking the question. The first thing he says, you better strive to enter. Verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. For man, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
And see, the subject isn't understood you. You strive. Worry about yourself. Make sure you get saved. Forget about everybody else. You be sure to get in. Don't you take you for granted. Can you sense Jesus' tone? There's an urgency here. There's a pressing here. There's, a, there's an eagerness, an, an emphatic sort of mood here. He's blood serious. And why? It's because of the second thing he says. He says not only you strive, he says you hurry. You hurry before it's too late. Verses 25 to 29 where he tells that story of a man coming to someone's door and the door is locked and he's on the outside knocking trying to get in. Now, I just want to say, you have often probably heard it said that, um, you know, God's at your door, heart of your door knocking and you got to let him in and all that good stuff from Revelation. I stand at the door and knock. This parable does it the other way. Pictures a man standing at Christ's door knocking. And Christ is inside with the joint locked up. And the man says, listen here. He said, hey man, we, we heard you preach. You were in our streets. We, we ate and we drank with you. We know you. And Jesus said, man, I don't know you. I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, you evildoers. Listen, beloved, there's a great difference between knowing God and hearing a couple of sermons. There's a great difference between fellowship with God and going to a couple of special church functions. Now, you can come to the church picnic and you can come to the church potluck and you can come hear Pastor Jeremy, Pastor Matt, Pastor T preach. <laughs> but you better hurry and enter the kingdom of God. The day is coming, the night is coming, when no man can work. The day is the day of salvation. Christ is coming again, and no man knows the day or the hour, and he tells this man, you hurry and enter the kingdom of God, because when he comes, it will be too late. There is no purgatory. There is no second chance. There's only this life, this moment, this now. And Jesus, as an evangelist, urges us Respond now. Believe now. Enter the kingdom now. Do not delay. Hurry. For there will be no other way in. There will be no windows left open. There will be no back doors unlocked. There will be nobody on the inside who will open for you. You must enter the kingdom of God now. He says, you strive, you hurry, as we said before, you had better know that you know God. A passing acquaintance with God is not the same as knowing God. And yet real knowledge of God is saving knowledge of God. What does Jesus say in John chapter 17, 3? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And Apostle John, writing in his letters, what does he say? Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Eternal life comes in the form of a person, the Son of God, who has come into the world to bring us to God the Father. And no one comes to God except through Christ, except the repenting of their sins and relying upon his sacrifice to pay the debt for their sins and relying upon his righteousness to satisfy God's law. No one comes to God except they come through Christ. Beloved, everybody talking about heaven ain't going. This man asked the question, will few be saved? Look at verses 28 and 29. 
There, Jesus says at the end of that verse, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth in verse 28. Why? It says there, they're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets, where? In the kingdom of God. Verse 29, they're going to see people from the east and the west, from the north and the south, from the four corners of the globe, reclining at God's table in the kingdom of God. And where will they be? Outside, looking in, weeping and gnashing teeth. Jesus urges upon them, you hurry, you strive, you be sure to know God. This has application to our evangelism too, doesn't it? Our evangelism should create an honest urgency. No manipulation, no no worldly means, but just a blood earnest urgency that the kingdom of God is at stake and souls are perishing outside of it. Listen, beloved, too many people act like hell is not real. Act as if hell is a conceptual problem and, and they act as if there's no kingdom to gain or no kingdom to lose. Remember the testimony of Pastor Lon Solomon at McLean Bible Church just down the way in Virginia. It's from a Jewish background and he tells his testimony. He talks about in his teenage years going to talk to his rabbi and his rabbi telling him that hell was a Gentile problem. And so he went out and started living like hell. I'll never forget being in the Middle East and uh, talking with a number of of Muslims there. We had a little um, tea, and we're sitting there, and we had just finished a Muslim-Christian debate, and I'm talking with my debate opponent and four or five of his entourage, and I'm I'm trying to press upon them the urgency and the necessity of of repenting and believing before they are judged in in Christ's judgment. And and one of the guys, the quietest of them all, a heavyset guy, dressed pretty traditionally, was stroking his beard, kind of listening. And then he kind of leaned up about 30 minutes in the conversation. He says, excuse me, do you mean to be suggesting that I would go to hell? I said, yes, that's right. And he says, as if if to correct my impression, he sort of leaned back and says, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm an Arab Muslim. As if hell is a non-Arab problem. (laughs) And there are many people in all of their ways, various ways, going through life as if hell really isn't their problem. And you notice here, Jesus creates this urgency. Jesus presses in upon them. And and think about what the rest of the Bible tells us about this urgency that we should have. So Hebrews what? Hebrews tells us it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of living God. And what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5, around verse 11? He says this, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You see the connection? Knowing the terror of the Lord, the severity of his judgment, that hell is eternal and hell is agonizing, knowing that his judgment is righteous and his judgment is coming sooner than man thinks, we do what? We persuade. We get urgent. We call them to hurry. Believe this gospel before it's too late. Trust this Christ before you have to give an account for your life. No one outside of Christ should ever ask the question, will those who are saved be few without trembling about their own soul? Which brings us to a third thing. The Lord announces the kingdom. The Lord urges uh, people to respond. But number three, the Lord looks at people with a bold brokenness. 
That's what we see in verses 31 to 35. He's still in the towns and villages, verse 31. And at that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now that's interesting, isn't it? The Pharisees want to kill him too. <laughs> they don't like Jesus. These Pharisees, though, they must have been of a little bit of a different ilk. They might have been a little bit more like Nicodemus. They're coming around, perhaps, but, but they warn the Lord. Somehow they know that Herod wants the Lord dead, and, and in that day, if a king wanted you dead, then basically you were going to be dead, right? The threat is real, and it's serious. But notice our Lord's boldness. First, he's bold in the face of the threat, verse 32. And he said to them, I love it when Jesus gets streaked too, right? Go and tell that fox. <laughs> Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my, cor my course. In other words, listen, this show going to be in town three days. So I ain't hard to find. I'm casting out demons and curing people. Just follow the line, right? <laughs> I'm going to be here today, tomorrow, and the third day I might pack up and roll out, right? In other words, I leave town when I'm ready. Now, most of us, somebody comes and say, hey, look, man, the king trying to kill you. We're like, well, we guess this country closed to the gospel. <laughs> it's a hard-to-reach people right here going over here somewhere, right? Look at the boldness of our Lord. Looks right in the face of the king and says, I'm here, man. And there would be no closed country if we had the heart that Christ has right here. But second, notice the Lord's boldness in the face of his hearers. He says to this Jewish audience, verse 35, Behold, your house is forsaken. Today it's popular for preachers to tell their hearers that God has a big house for them. Some people dedicate themselves exclusively to a message of positivity and prosperity, but that's not how Jesus evangelizes. Notice, he tells his audience that they are about to be cast out of the kingdom of God, that their house has been forsaken by God, that their, their plan of redemption, whatever they were trusting, is putting them in real danger. They're about to be left out and forsaken. The Lord is bold before threats and audiences, but he's also broken. He also has a contrite heart. He knows that death awaits him in Jerusalem. See what he says in verse 33. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He knows he's going to his death. And yet the Lord weeps not for himself. He weeps for Jerusalem. See what he says in verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Breaks the Savior's heart that his people refuse to be saved. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, when he finally comes over that hill going up into Jerusalem and he lays eyes on the city, the Bible tells us in verse 41, he saw that city and he wept. He wept for such hardness of heart that would refuse the free offer of an eternal kingdom. The Lord is bold, but he is also broken. And when we do the work of evangelism, we, we want to hold together those two attitudes as well. It can be tough sometimes. 
We can be cold, or excuse me, bold, but uncaring, can't we? Or we can be broken, tender toward people, but fearing man, not tell them the truth. See, we want enough boldness to risk ourselves as the Lord does in verses 31 and 33, but we also want enough brokenness to weep as the Lord does in verse 34. See, we can't shrink away from hard truth if we're going to be faithful evangelists. That's ultimately unloving and untruthful. But we ought never speak hard truth with a hard heart. That's unloving and misrepresenting. We're most ready to evangelize when we have both boldness and brokenness. Let us be that kind of church that's marked by real zeal to tell people the good news. And as we go, we leave a trail of tears, weeping at those who refuse it, broken at those who would perish in God's judgment rather than be saved in his mercy. It would be good if we had some Jeremiah's among us, some weeping prophets. It would be good if we would ask the Lord to examine our hearts if they are either too hard and uncaring or too brash in a worldly boldness. But by his spirit, give us the right temper of brokenness and boldness to declare the gospel. Which brings us to a fourth observation. The Lord announces the kingdom. He urges entry, and he does so with both brokenness and boldness. But number four, the Lord challenges people directly or personally. And that's what we see in verses 1 to 24 of chapter 14. It's another Sabbath day. This time, the Lord appears at a dinner party. It says they're at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. I'm saying it's a ruler of the Pharisees, so this party includes all the sort of upper echelon of the religious society, all the religious muckety-mucks, right? And as these things go, it's not exactly a friendly dinner party. I mean, you guys ever been to an upscale dinner party? Folks just seem like they got knives for fingernails, right? And everybody trying to figure out who talking to who and who can move up the pecking order and all that good stuff. Notice verse 1 as they were watching him carefully. Not to learn, but to try and trap him. Now, I want us to notice something about the Lord's behavior at this dinner party. He's not seeking the approval of anyone there. He's not trying to fit in. He's not trying to schmooze. He's not trying to shape his message so that everybody there is comfortable. In fact, the Lord is really in everybody's face. As an evangelist, Jesus is he's just right up in people's grills, man. And they're, they're different type of people through these 24 chapters, these 24 verses that the Lord, he just gets in their face. And first of all, notice the religious in verses 2 to 5. I don't know what it is about the Sabbath. It's supposed to be a day of rest. But you ever notice the Pharisees always start in trouble on the Sabbath? <laughs> Turns out it takes more than one conversation to fix a Pharisee. You know, religious hypocrisy is stubborn, Right? And there he is again, he heals this time a man with dropsy, does it right in front of them. Before he heals the man, he asks a similar question as he did in chapter 13. He said, listen, is it lawful on the Sabbath for you to get your son or your ox out of a well? And all these rich Pharisees, if they had a son fall into a well, if they had an ox fall into the well, you know they're going to get their boys and they're going to get their son or their ox out the well, right? And they wouldn't have any qualms about it being lawful 
And the question is designed to, to provoke compassion in them, to make them say, well, how much more this man suffering dropsy? That it would be lawful to heal him. And so he, he heals them right in front of them while they are watching them, and nobody is moved. Nobody's mind has changed. Nobody's heart has changed. Listen, beloved, when we pray for evangelism and we pray for the work of God, let us not be like those Christians more concerned with some demonstration of miracles. Miracles are not any more compelling than words. Let us be concerned that the Lord would give our words power. He can send miracles if he wants to, but we're not going to trust in miracles. Let us trust in the power of the gospel itself. Jesus heals this man and these religious hypocrites. Verse 6, they could not reply to these things. They didn't need to give an answer in refutation of these things. They needed to humble themselves and submit to these things. And Christ is just drawing them out. But notice also, um, just going down in the next little section, in the next paragraph in verse 7, Jesus turns from the lawyers and the scribes to tell a people to all the guests there. He noticed something about them in verse 7. Did you see that? They were all trying to sit in the most prominent place, right? Now, all the guests can't sit right next to the host, but they squeezing up, bunching up top, you know, at the table, right, trying to get next to the host. And Jesus tells this story. He says, listen, now, if you go to a wedding, somebody invites you to a wedding, don't go take the prominent seat. Sit down here in the lowly place. Because if you go take the prominent seat and somebody more prominent than you comes in, you're about to get embarrassed, right? Because he's going to say, hey, hey, look here, man, you, you move down here to the kiddie table and you let this guy come up here and sit with me. Jesus says the, the other way is better. Start low and let somebody else exalt you, right? That's the way the kingdom works. We, we seek humility and God exalts the humble, right? They don't understand how the kingdom works. And so he tells them, he tells them this story. And verse 11 gives the punchline. Everyone who exalts himself will be humble. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the way the gospel and the kingdom work. He just turns to all the guests and gets in their face about their pride. Or, or notice the next group of people, the wealthy. He turns to the host now in verses 12 to 14, and he tells them not to throw banquets for their rich family and friends. Instead, they should give a feast, notice, for the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind, people who cannot repay them. That's how they are going to be blessed, by showing generosity to those who cannot repay them. And they're going to be blessed in the resurrection of the righteous. I bet you that room full of rich and powerful people were quieter right about that time. They looked around the room, and nobody in the room was, in our day, making less than six figures. The room was full of bling and fancy robes and black tie and tails. And no poor people there, no broken people there, no lame people there because there was no concern for the kingdom and its priorities there. Only who could do more for me than I can do for someone else. Notice this last group that he challenges, verses 15 to 24. He again seems to be addressing people who presume that they're going to heaven. Someone at the table said in verse 15, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Maybe he's thinking, well, look, if, if, if we're to invite all the lame and so on into the kingdom, surely all of us who are wealthy are going to be there then. So, so blessed is everybody who is, is in the kingdom. 
The Lord tells a story about a man who gave a great banquet and invited many. Verse 16. But all the folks on the list made excuses. You see that? Verse 18. One person said, I just bought a new field. I didn't go out and plow my field. Verse 19. Another person said, I just bought some cattle. I need to go tend to my cattle. Verse 21, 20 said, man, I just got married. I'm on my honeymoon. I can't go. He's the only one telling the truth. Wife won't let him. <laughs> Verse 20, he's making an excuse too. And they're probably all presuming that they're good with the man who invited them to the feast. They presume upon their position. What does the man do? When he hears from his servant, they've refused to come. He tells the servant, go out into the highways and the lanes of the city Bring in, notice again, the poor, crippled, blind, and lame, verse 21. And when he finds out that there's still more room in his banquet, the man says, go into the highways and the hedges now and, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. If, if the kingdom is taken away from the worldly wise and powerful, notice it's given to the poor and the marginalized. And that truth, runs throughout Luke's gospel. We see it there even in this section. We see it in verse 2 of chapter 14. We see it again in verse 13. And we see it here in verse 21. The man in the story symbolizes God. God has an undying, underlying concern for the poor, for the broken, for the mistreated in society. God fills his house with such people. Notice verse 24. I tell you, none of these men who invited who were invited shall taste my banquet. It's the broken who entered the kingdom, not the healthy. You remember what our Lord says? It's not the healthy who needs a physician, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. The more we recognize our brokenness and our need, the closer we get to the kingdom of God. The more we deny our brokenness and our need, the further away from the kingdom we get. God has this unrelenting concern for the marginalized. And let me say this. When Jesus is challenging these groups of people at this dinner party, he's not just blasting them over small sins. I wonder if you pick that up. Each of those attitudes is a major damnable sin. So to the hypocrite, the Lord hates hypocrisy. Consider Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those, who would, who would enter, allow those to enter who would go in. He hates that kind of hypocrisy. And pride. Does not the Lord hate pride? Isn't that in some sense the most wretched of sins, that exalting oneself against God kind of sin? What do we read in James and in Peter? God opposes the proud, but gives what? Grace to the humble and the wealthy. Can't money become an idol? Doesn't the Bible tell us that money is the root of all kinds of evil, the love of money is? And in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says these well-known words, no man can what? Serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he says this, you cannot serve God and money. 
or the presuming. Without repentance, you cannot enter the kingdom. And presuming upon the kindness of God is itself a wretched sin. So Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The very reason God is kind to sinners is that in his kindness, they might recognize his goodness and turn to him and come to him. And so when Jesus is in these folks' face about pride and money and presuming and all that good stuff, he is talking with them about sins that are really acceptable in polite society, particularly if you're wealthy and paper it over with money, but it's really damnable in God's sight. He's talking about them about things that will destroy their souls unless they repent and trust in him. So here's an application, perhaps. Let us redefine the term hard to reach. We often talk about tough neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods being hard to reach. But in Luke's gospel, the poor and the broken flock to Jesus. In the Bible, the people who are hard to reach are the people who trust their riches. They're so hard to reach, they move way out in the suburbs where you can't find them, right? It's not Anacostia that's hard to reach. It's Capitol Hill. It's not east of the river that's hard to reach. I mean, if you've been out with us on Saturdays to share the gospel, you might have been surprised, as I am, at how easy you can have gospel conversation with people. Even when they don't disagree. They're not threatening you. They're not talking about religious liberty. They're not trying to run you off. But cross the bridge. Go, go to Capitol Hill. Find you a pinstripe suit. Start talking about Jesus. And watch how quickly you get hit with, you know, charges of bigotry and exclusiveness and narrow-mindedness and, and how quickly you began to be read out of society and how quickly you might come to some threat of some kind of legal action. It's not our neighbors in Anacostia who are hard to reach. That's just our fear talking. That's just the ways in which our hearts have gotten acclimated to the world so that we look with uncritical disdain at the poor. It's not our neighbors that are hard to reach. It's our former neighbors for some of us. It's our co-workers for some of us. It's folks across the bridge who, yeah, they're not on the corner doing PCP. But their daughter is in a big old bedroom doing meth. And you don't know it because they get treated because they got money to get treatment. It's hard to reach that. And don't get me wrong, the Bible is not anti-wealth. The Bible is anti-trusting wealth. The Bible is anti-making money a God. And that makes a heart hard. So maybe we need to rethink who's hard to reach and who's open to the gospel. Matthew chapter 21, verse 31, Jesus tells these same types of people, the Pharisees and tax collectors, he says, listen, Pharisees and scribes, he says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. I love that. That's a real check on religious hypocrisy and pride. 
Luke 18, 25, the Lord says, it's easier for what? A camel to go through the eye of a needle than what? For a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It seems God would think the wealthy are hard to reach and the poor should be compelled to come in, should be gathered into his kingdom. So let us make sure we don't get this backwards. And let us make sure that we draw again the confidence from that line which says, compel them to come in. For that's what the gospel and the Holy Spirit do. They compel people to come in by God's omniscient, omniscient, gracious, sovereign power. He works upon the heart, renews the heart, raises the dead to life, and drives them lovingly into his kingdom, and his house will be filled. Now, there's a way in which we should pay attention to numbers. We're not done until this auditorium is filled, and until it's filled again, and until it's filled again, and until all of Southeast D.C. is reached with the gospel or Jesus comes back. The empty seat next to you is appointed for someone yet to be saved. Pray for the person who should be in that seat. Pray that the Lord would compel them to come in as he compels us to go out. Pray that we would be effective at reaching the four corners of the block. And pray that that would be true this side of the river and the other side too. This brings us to our final thing. The Lord, number five, is upfront about the cost of discipleship. That's what we see in verses 25 to 35. It's the fourth scene. Notice there in verse 25, a great crowd is accompanying him. There's always a, a crowd following Jesus. But I trust we know by now in Luke's gospel, a crowd is not the same thing as a church. You can gather a crowd in a lot of different ways. You can only gather a church through evangelism and discipleship. So the Lord turned and began to address the crowd. He wants to be crystal clear about what it means to follow him. And let me give it to you real four bullet points right here. Following Jesus requires four significant costs. Number one, that we hate our family and our own lives, verses 25 and 26. Now what's meant there is not carnal hatred. Not, not hate there is metaphorical. What's meant is we so prize and value and place high above and in first place the Lord Jesus Christ that when it comes to any kind of comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ or any claim upon our loyalty or our affection, we would appear to hate our family and friends because we put Christ so far out in front in first. So you can't follow Christ and worship your family. You can't follow Christ and want your own life. You must die. And that's what the second thing comes to. Verse 27, we must bear our own cross. That's the second cause. If Jesus goes to the cross for our salvation, there's no way that we can go, not go to the cross for his mission. If he dies for our redemption, well, there must be a dying for us as we serve him. And the Bible tells us over and over again, the gospels, doesn't it? that if we're going to be his disciples, that every day we must die to ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. That's a, a daily ritual. Every morning the Christian rises from the slumber of sleep. He should fall upon his knees and pray. I pray. You pray. Christ, drive the cross through our hearts again today. 
that we would die to ourselves, and that we would live to you. And that means, beloved, that our desires are not to be served. Christ is. Our hopes, our wants, our plans, our dreams, they may be fine as they go, but they all have to be submitted to Jesus. He gets to edit them. He gets to veto them. He gets to write entirely new ones. If you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, you know that his plans are always better than yours. Every once in a while, he lets you do it your way, doesn't he? And you come back with knots on your head, talking about, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Can you fix this? Look what I did. Can you help a brother out, you know? You know, every once in a while, he lets us go our way. But the safe way, good way, true way, blessed way is his way. Number three, notice now, we're going to follow Jesus, then we must count the cost, verses 28 to 32. We don't want to be a king going to war without considering the other army. We don't want to be a man building a tower, building a house without considering the cost of materials. Uh, we want to sort of look squarely at what it means to follow Jesus take some stock of what it will cost us as best we can and follow Jesus. His point here is not, look how hard it is to follow Jesus, so don't worry about it. His point is, it's going to cost you everything and it's worth it. The one who will fight your battle is not you with your army of 10,000, it will be Christ, an army of one. And in him you will have the victory. The one who will build you a house is not you sort of building a house in, in this world. It will be Christ who goes away and prepares a mansion for us. Consider that all that we need in the way of provision and all that we need in the way of protection comes in Christ. Count the cause and embrace them. Someone has said salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. And that's the point in verse 33 must renounce everything that has its hold on us and everything that we jealously hold. Our possessions, our persons, our privileges, our positions. Nail them to the cross and follow Christ. That's the cost of discipleship. And the reward of discipleship is eternal life. An everlasting kingdom. A glorious peace with God basking in the love of God, enjoying the glory of God. Our death in discipleship is really our life in Christ. Every dying springs forth into a newer, deeper experience of eternal life. Let us die gladly that we might be rewarded greatly. Look at the alternative in verses 34 and 35. Unless we count these costs and take up our cross, we are like salt that loses its flavor, loses its saltiness. See how the Lord describes that. It's good for nothing except to be thrown on the manure pot. The wasted life is the life that's jealously grasped and forgets the cross. How does Jesus put it? What would it profit you to gain the whole world and lose your soul? But what will you give in exchange for your soul? The blessed life is a life gladly surrendered and found again in Christ. And maybe you're here this morning and all this talk of a kingdom and a savior is new to you. 
Maybe you've been thinking about it for some time. You have a decision to make, whether it's new or old to you. It's a choice between life and death. Between blessing and cursing. Between the kingdom of God and an everlasting hell. You may have life and blessing and a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot be taken, that cannot be ruined, that cannot be spoiled, that cannot be lost, that cannot be forfeited. You may have a life that truly is life, that is abundant and everlasting. Or you may have a death that is not sleep but torment. That is not a moment but everlasting. That is not quiet but agonizing. For hell is no vacation spot for the cool people of this world. Hell is no place of partying but suffering. And Christ has come into the world to save you from hell and keep you for heaven. He did that by dying in your place to pay the penalty of your sins and mine. And he did that by living in our place to, to perfectly obey God when we had broken his law. And in his resurrection, he proves that he has power to give life to us all. And in his resurrection, he proves that he has defeated death and the grave. And in his resurrection, he proves that he has defeated our greatest enemy, Satan himself. And in his resurrection, he calls us, come, be glorified with me. Believe on me, trust me, rely upon me, and follow me in faith, and I will give you life. That's his offer to every one of us, rich or poor, young or old, male or female, able or disabled, black, white, brown, all of us. He says, come, and he will save you and give you life. Hurry. The door will one day be locked. Today is the day of salvation. Confess your sins to God. Put your trust in Jesus Christ to save you. And begin right now a brand new life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we wish to do your work your way. We want very much to be evangelists like you. Help us as a church to be faithful to announce your kingdom, to urge people to repent and to believe, to challenge them personally, oh, Lord, given their own particular circumstances, oh, Lord, and to call them to pay the great cost and receive the great reward. We pray that right now, this morning, even now, by the power of your spirit, you would compel some to come into your kingdom. In fact, compel everyone here who does not yet know you to come into your kingdom. Give them a saving knowledge of your son, Father, we pray, in the power of your spirit. Let them behold Jesus crucified for them, resurrected for them. Let them behold him, O oh Lord, as beautiful and glorious, as a, as a wonderful Savior. And grant them, O oh Lord, the ability to believe and to repent and to so enter your kingdom. 
Satan would hinder them. He would distract them. The world, O oh Lord, would call out to them. Their own flesh would conspire against them, defeat their enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and give them freedom this day, the freedom of eternal life. Make them glad with the joy of your salvation. And strengthen us to run the race. Until you come, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.